Thank you, Chris and praise team. This morning I'm beginning a series called Navigating a Changing Culture. And we're going to be taking a look scripturally at some of the issues that we are facing today. And I want to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 25. So I encourage you to uh, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. As you're turning there, just to give you an update on my daughter Emma, she is continuing to do well. Uh, very thankful. Her cough is continuing to be strong and consistent, and so we are very thankful and ask for your continued prayers. Before I read the text this morning, which will be Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, I wanted to take a moment to, uh, to address some of the fear that I believe underlies much of the anger that is prevalent today. Like, like most of you, I feel a sense of shock and anger and really disbelief when I see that the backdrop for the inauguration of the next president will be armed National Guard soldiers and how troops are being deployed to protect state capitals also. I'm very well aware that the issues that divide our nation are serious and very complex. And there is no way that I can address all of them in one message, let alone a brief statement. But I can, however, remind us that we are not to live in fear, but in hope. This past week, I have read and reread Psalm 11. In that psalm, a counselor comes to David, and this counselor tells David, Flee to the mountains, your, your enemies are at hand. And the counselor says to David, If the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? It's a statement of fear and panic. On Psalm 11, David answers this counselor. David says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, my foundation is God. And he never, never crumbles. God is on his throne. And I serve his kingdom. This is the time for us to demonstrate the hope of the gospel. And we do that best when we remember that our primary allegiance is to God and his kingdom. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ. Which means that we represent him and his kingdom. And his kingdom is not brought about by violence or intimidation. His kingdom comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the weapons of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and the proclamation of the gospel. We must be salt and light. Now, I do believe that these days, although they are trying, these days present an opportunity for the church to shine brightly and to flavor this world with the grace of God. So rather than living in fear, let's recommit to our purpose so that this will indeed be the church's finest hour. Now, with those things in mind, I want to now begin with the message by reading Psalm, not Psalm, but Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. This is a section where Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the coming judgment. 
And he says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Would you bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord, this morning we open your word with confidence that it is infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. It is truth. We confess our need for truth, Lord. We confess our need for you to guide us, to incline our hearts to obey you. So please, do your work this morning. I pray that confidently knowing that your word will always, without fail, accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So Lord, let it find willing recipients this morning. May you be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned a moment ago, I'm beginning a series entitled Navigating a Changing Culture. My goal in this series is to help us to understand how we can truly present the gospel and answer some of the issues that are brought to the forefront about and against Christianity today. I'm presenting this in the spirit of 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 through 16 where Peter who is writing to a church that is being persecuted says... You need to be ready to give a reason for the hope you have. Reminds me that in the midst of difficult times, we are to be people marked by hope. And when people ask us, why are you filled with hope? We must be prepared to give a reasoned defense for why we believe the gospel. So in many ways, this this series is going to be a little bit more of a teaching series than it will be a preaching series. I'm often reminded of the story told by Mark Twain when he was known as Samuel Clemens and he was learning how to navigate and to drive one of the steamboats on the Mississippi River. He recounts that it was late one night and it was a very dark night. The moon was hidden behind clouds and he was on the bridge with the captain. Twain was becoming nervous. Due to the darkness of the night, it was becoming hard to recognize the bends and the shifts in the river so he asked the captain how in the world do you navigate when it is so dark the captain answered him by saying 
learn the shape of the river. So that when things appear different, you know the shape of the river. So you know the way to go. Culture is always in a state of change. But we serve a God who does not change. We believe a gospel that does not change. And we have a purpose that does not change. So as we come to know God who does not change, as we come to know the scripture that does not change, and we have a gospel that does not change, we need to keep those things in mind as we navigate a very changing world. So my hope and my prayer is that we will not live in fear of these changes, nor will we just accept them with a shrug of the shoulders and say, well, that's the way it is. But I pray that we will re recommit ourselves to share the gospel and to live faithfully in challenging times. Now I've stated before that I believe the foundational issue in our culture today is the loss of belief in absolute truth. Now absolute truth refers to facts that are true for all people in all times at all places. They never change. Absolute truth does not change. But today, the primary belief in the only thing that is absolute is scientific truth, which we will deal with and address in a message in the near, very near future. But because there is no belief in absolute truth, each person is viewed as the arbitrator of their own truth. You've probably heard it expressed like this. Well, what is true is true for you. What is true is true for me. And that's just the way it is. But we are seeing the result of that thinking in our culture. Our culture that is now adrift like a, a ship at sea in a storm without a rudder. And because of the abandonment of truth, we have lost sight of what makes life valuable. Today is recognized as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we live in a world that denies that life is sacred. Because we have lost this view of truth, we have lost the view of what makes life valuable, and because of that, our, our culture is filled with paradoxes. Let me give you some examples. Tragically, abortion is still legal in these United States. However, in the majority of states, if a person kills a woman who is pregnant and tragically the baby in the womb is also killed, that person can be charged with double homicide. Yet if the mother makes the decision to end the life of that child in the womb, many applaud that. What's the difference other than the choice of the mother? Another paradox we live with is that we applaud acts of compassion. Yet we are drawn to violence. We are a violent culture. How can we applaud acts of compassion on one hand and then in the other, to other hand lift up acts of violence? Another paradox is that we are moved by stories of kindness. But then we are quick to malign those with whom we disagree. Those paradoxes, these paradoxes occur because we have no standard. We are a ship at sea without a rudder. Now in the vacuum of truth, in other words, when truth is denied, there will be this vacuum. 
And any culture will then work to try to find a, a foundation for why life is valued, for why we do the things that we do. And typically, our culture turns to three. Many who hold to the idea of creation only by evolution or creation by evolution follow it to its logical extreme. And when they are asked, where is the value of life? They will simply answer, there is no value. There is no meaning to life. That's called nihilism. Others will say, well, the value of life is only found in what you create. Your meaning is based upon what you create. That's the only meaning there is. If you like vocabulary and definitions, that's what you know known as existentialism. It's where each person determines their own truth, their own value, their own meaning. That's where the idea of what is true for you may not be true for me comes from. Another way we try to answer the value of life in a culture that's removed from truth is we say, well, the value of a person is only found in what they can produce or what they can add to society. In other words, if you can't produce or can't add value to society, therefore your value as a person is diminished. That's called utilitarianism. But each of those only leads to one place. It is where life is devalued. Christianity stands in contrast to these views because we believe and hold to the truth that every life is valuable. And every life is precious. And every life, every person is sacred. We hold this based on two truths. One, we believe that every person, every person is made by God. Psalm 139 speaks of this when the psalmist says, You knit me together inside my mother's womb. That truth does not apply only to David, only to that psalmist. Every person is created by God within the womb. God is the master maker who is knitting together the fabric of which we are made. The second reason we hold that every person is valuable and precious is because every person is not only made by God, but every person is made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what it means to be made in the image of God. But there's no debating that we have value because we carry his image. Think of it in terms like this. Suppose you were busy cleaning out your grandparents' garage. And in doing so, you came across this painting. And you, you look at it and you think, man, that is a beautiful painting. I don't know what it's doing out here in the garage. And you think, well, I don't want to keep it, but, you know, I can maybe sell it in a yard sale, maybe get 10 bucks out of it, maybe. It would even, even take eight fifty. But then suppose a friend of yours stops by, a friend who is acquainted with art. This friend begins to examine that painting. She says, you know what? I think that's a Rembrandt. Now, don't ask how a Rembrandt ended up in your grandparents' garage. Just go with the illustration here. Because that may be a Rembrandt, and a Rembrandt where he painted his own image into that painting, what do you think happens to the painting 
the value of that painting because of whose image is in it and who made it. It all of a sudden goes from being worth maybe $10 to being worth $10 million. All because of who made it and whose image it bears. Because every person is made by God. And every person is made in the image of God. Every person, even to the least of these, is valuable and is to be treated as such. That's the point of what we read in Matthew 25, 31 through 40. The scene is that of judgment. Jesus is teaching about the final judgment. All of this began in chapter 24 when the disciples asked a question about the end of the age and Jesus begins teaching about that day when every person will stand before the throne of God. In fact, prior to the passage I read, Jesus tells three parables about being ready for that day. He tells about the wise and the unwise servants who are called to account. Jesus tells a parable of ten virgins who are waiting for marriage and about those who have their lamps bright and ready and burning and those who are not prepared. He then tells a parable of ten talents, of a person who was given talents and they did not use them but buried them. Now those three parables carry the common thread about being ready for the day of judgment. But what does it mean to be ready? By what criteria will we be judged? It's a very valid question. It's like a teacher being asked by the student, what will be on the test? Well, Jesus answers that question. The criteria is listed in Matthew 25, 31, and really through verse 46. I just read a portion of it. Here's the criteria for judgment. You want to know how you will be judged? Look at this text. Four times in verses 31 through 46, Jesus repeats the same thing. Four times in verses 31 through 46, Jesus repeats giving food to the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, which means they did not have means to even purchase clothing. They were destitute, stricken by poverty. Four times he mentions taking care of the sick. And remember, these are days before hospitals where any care was given in the home. And he speaks of showing hospitality to the stranger, the one who comes into town and has no place to stay. He speaks of visiting the one in prison. And remember, prisons at this time, they didn't provide basic needs. To be thrown in prison in many ways was a death sentence because the only food and clothing you would receive as a prisoner would be what would be provided by friends and family. So if you were a prisoner and had no one that cared about you, it would be a very slow death. Now I want to be clear. This passage does not teach that salvation is by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. That is the only way to be saved, to be right with God. However, this passage does teach that once you have been saved, you will show grace just as you have been given grace. In other words, these are signs, characteristic acts that will be done by those who have received the grace of God. 
So Jesus says that when we serve the least of these, those who are powerless, those who are suffering, those who cannot pay us back, we are doing it to him. This begs the question, then, why does God value this? And how can Jesus make the statement, whatever you've done to that hungry person, that person who can't afford clothes, that person who's in prison, you've done it to me. How can he say that? And I would answer in this way. First, these acts of compassion to the least of these demonstrate the character of God. When we love those and minister to those who are in no position to pay us back, Are we not showing the same compassion and the grace that God has given to us? For after all, what can we do to pay back God? Are we not destitute before Him, lost in our sins, needing His grace and His divine intervention that we might be clothed in His righteousness? Is this not what God did when He sent Jesus to the earth? Was He not loving us when we were outcast? Jesus demonstrated this in His ministry. When he met a Samaritan woman at the well, when she came by herself because she was an outcast, he was loving the least. When he healed the the elderly woman of a blood disease that she had suffered with for over 12 years, he was loving the least. You see this even when Jesus sat down and dined with Zacchaeus, who although he was a man of power and position, he was the least because he was an outcast and vilified. Jesus was loving the least. So God values this because in doing so, in doing these acts of compassion, we demonstrate the character of God. But he also values this because every person is made in the image of God. That's how I understand it when Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Because that person who is the least, that person who is suffering, they bear the image of God. Now this text expands to us the value of life. It expands for us the idea of the sanctity of human life. It reminds us that all of life is valuable. I've always appreciated how Dr. Tony Evans, the pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, puts it. He says that we must have an ethic that values life from womb to tomb. Now, if you'd permit me, there are three applications that I want to draw from this passage and from this overall truth that all of life is valuable. First application is this. We must value life from conception. We must value life in the womb. Now, we can do this in several ways. We must work within every legal means to stop abortion. To support legislation that is indeed pro-life. We must be aware of what is going on and speak. And to, to fulfill our rights as American citizens to speak to legislation. Now thankfully, over the past 10 years, there's been a decline in the number of abortions in the United States. And that's a, oh, praise God for that. But there is still much work to be done. In many ways, the decline in the number of abortions is due to ministries like Psalm 139 that works alongside crisis pregnancy centers to supply them with sonograms and ultrasound machines so that mothers who are afraid can hear the heartbeat and can see the baby in their womb. 
we need to be prepared to support ministries like that. Ministries like Agape Women's Services. That in the month of February, you're going to be hearing more about and find out more ways to come alongside them in their ministry to support those who choose life. But we also must do all of this on a personal level. What I mean is that as we engage with those, with our neighbors and our friends who may not understand how we can value life within the womb, we must be prepared to answer those who would say, well, what about an embryo or a fetus? That's not a person, is it? Our answer must be that even an embryo, even life from its first conception, is valuable because an embryo is a human being only at a different stage of development. This is what I mean. At 12 weeks of development, think of this, at 12 weeks, a baby's fingers will begin to open and close. At 12 weeks, his toes will curl, his eye muscles will clench, and his mouth will make sucking movements. At 12 weeks, hair and nails begin to develop. At 10 weeks, the baby has 10 toes and 10 fingers and is beginning to grow peach fuzz-like hair. It's part of the stage of development. An embryo and even a fetus may be less developed than a fully grown human or a baby that is born, but they are no less valuable. To say that an embryo inside a mother's womb is not life, not valuable because they are he or she is not fully developed is like looking at my 15-month-old grandson and saying, well, because Kimball's not as developed as a four-year-old, he's not as valuable. Or because that four-year-old is not as developed as a 16-year-old, they're not as valuable. I think we would recognize that all of life, even at different stages of development, is valuable because it is life. And many times the debate is framed in terms of a woman's right to control her body. The scripture teaches us that women have been given an incredible blessing and that they can develop and carry life. And the issue is about that life. It's about the fact that once an, an egg is fertilized, life begins to develop. Yes, that life is dependent upon the mother. And that responsibility should never be taken lightly. But it's where we recognize that as that child grows, that child is a precious gift from God and should be valued. So not only should we be aware of and support legislation that is pro-life, not only should we engage in conversations with our neighbors and our friends about why we believe and value life, we must also, quite frankly, put our money where our mouth is and support life and to be available to help mothers that choose life. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about Agape Women's Services. They are there to walk alongside that mother and that young child and helping to provide needs. There's one more thing we can do. We can support adoption and foster care options. Adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel. In the New Testament, it's told that we are adopted by God into His family. So those are ministries that we should look to support. Now there's a second application that I want to draw from this. It won't be as lengthy as the first, but nevertheless, it is equally as important. 
We must value life, not only by supporting and believing that life begins at conception, but we must value life by lamenting the way our culture loves violence. It doesn't take you long if you look at any sort of media to recognize that we are enamored with violence. God hates violence. When you read in Genesis 6, as God is preparing and giving the explanation as to why He will destroy the world in the flood, He says that He will be destroying the world because the earth is corrupt with a love for violence. Psalm 11.5 says this, The Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We must value life by asking God to develop within us an abhorrence, a hatred for violence. The taking of life is never something that we should be happy about. Furthermore, we should be shocked whenever any human is injured or hurt. We should feel a grief within our hearts. And this may be a time for us to take a look at our own hearts and to say, Lord, have I become calloused to violence around us so that I just look over it without thinking? That is a human being, one made in the image of God that is suffering. We must value life by lamenting the way we have grown to love violence. Third application is this. We must learn to be very careful with our words. Now, as I make that application, you may be asking, what does that, what do my words have to do with the sanctity of life? I ask you to listen to James 3, 9 through 10. In James 3, James has been talking about the dangers of the tongue. He says that the words we speak, the tongue, that's what the tongue represents, is like a small spark that can set ablaze a whole forest. And he concludes this teaching about our words by saying this, with it, that is our tongue. We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers these things ought not to be so. James is very clear. He says, how can we gather to worship and use our tongues to praise God and then turn around and speak ill and curse others and notice his rationale. Curse others who are made in the likeness of God. How can we praise God then turn around and speak ill of those made in his image? The reason that we are not to curse or to speak ill of others is because they are made in the image and the likeness of God. If anything, the events of the last two weeks and in the months leading up to it should reinforce this truth. Our words matter. What we say and what we post in any social media matters. As followers of Jesus, we should never have part in demonizing or wishing harm on another person. It is tragic and sinful to claim to follow Christ while posting 
posting that we would wish for harm to come upon leaders of our nation or anyone for that matter. Now we should be prepared to discuss and debate policy all day long. But as followers of Jesus, we should never dehumanize or attack or wish ill on another person, whether we do that by speaking it or by writing it or by liking or retweeting a post. Because once we like a post on social media or retweet, we retweet something, we are agreeing with it. You see, we must always remember that the end does not justify the means. Our language is to reflect the love of Christ. Our language is to show the value of the human being of whom we are speaking of. We are to overcome evil with good rather than using evil to accomplish what we believe to be good. Our words can either be like gas or water to a fire. It breaks my heart to know that there are many who claim to follow Christ who have chosen to use their words to flame the fire rather than representing Jesus. We are called to be different from the world because we know that the person with whom we disagree with is made in the image of God just like we are. Therefore, they should be treated with value and respect even in the midst of disagreement. You see, valuing life extends from womb to tomb. The late author and pastor Eugene Peterson, who was also a teacher, a man of many talents, told a story about one of his students. This student lived a, a pretty far distance from the college, and the only way he could get to the college was by taking a bus each and every morning. The story came to Dr. Peterson that each day as this man, this student was walking out the door, he said to his wife, I'm just going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation today. And he left the home for that day. The next day his parting words were the same. I'm going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation today. And then this happened for a third day. And finally the wife said, don't you think you ought to go to class today? A couple of days walking in the woods or on the beach is okay, but don't you think enough is enough? Her husband said, oh, I've been going to class every day. And she answered him, well, what's this business about you immersing yourself in, in creation? This man replied, well, I spend 40 minutes on the bus each morning and afternoon. Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created, created in the image of God, created different races, different ethnicities, created male and female. And she said, I never thought of that. Peterson concludes by saying, we need to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above us and the violets blooming at our feet. Men and women, children and the elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees and paralytics, the mentally challenged and the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature, of God's creation. Let's let it be so. Would you bow with me in prayer before we finish with the song?
Father, help us to grow in our value and appreciation of life. Father, sometimes our emotions get the best of us. And I pray that you would forgive us for when that happens. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us so that we see the value of every person. And Lord, even when we disagree with someone, help us, Father, to do so respectfully, recognizing their dignity. Lord, I do pray for changes in our nation, that we would come to value life in the womb. Have mercy on us, O oh God. Have mercy on us. Turn the hearts of our legislators to see the value of life from its very beginning. And Lord, I pray that rather than being a culture of death, we would become one that values all of life. I ask this to your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.